Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. It's our first show of 2023 and we are delighted to be back. And what better way to kick off the new year than with a packed programme of cultural goodies that lie in wait for us in the coming months. Philia Boots will be bringing you the best TV shows, books and exhibitions that you should have on your radar. And I'm joined by three exceptional arbiters of taste to help determine what those should be with the TV critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan, the curator and writer Francesca Gavin and the writer and literary critic Chris Power. Welcome all to the programme. Lovely to have you here in personage. Mm, yeah. Good to be here. Back and fresh in 2023. <laughs> um, have we got any... Let's get it out of the way at the top of the programme. Do we have any New Year's resolutions? How are we feeling? Are we feeling like we need to change things, Scott? I think mine is to watch better TV. Because okay. even though I review... TV shows and they can be good and bad. Mm-hmm. I've gotten into the tendency on my time off to just watch like <laughs> the lowest brow television, which I'm not against. Yeah. But it can just fill so much time. It's about being selective. Like yeah. I should be watching, you know, the HBO dramas, not the one show. Although that's not <laughs> slating the one show. <laughs> I'm slating the one show now. Letting in a little bit of daylight in upon magic upon the t- the, the TV critic uh, Scott Bryan's. Yeah, kind of like what happens at seven o'clock on the Brian sofa. I like that. It's terrifying. My, <laughs> when I moved in with my, my flatmate, he thought, I really thought we'd be watching better shows. But alas, alas, no. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Yeah, this doesn't seem like I'm getting into the sort of lucky dip of kind of preview shows and all the rest of it. No. I like I like that you've told us that. And May, May 2023 bring you quality, not quantity, then, Scott. All right. And uh, Chris, what about you? Any news resolutions for you? Yeah, I'm actually going to try and uh, get to the cinema more because I got a little out of the habit of it over the pandemic yeah. years. Scary that we can say years. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and I went to see Barbarian not too long ago at the BFI. And it was just one of the most joyous experiences being in a packed room watching a terrifying horror movie. <laughs> a lot of people. It was just a great life-affirming experience. I like it. I like it. I like it. If I have to, you pluck the lightness from the darkness. <laughs> I like it. Um, and Fran, what about you? I mean, I would say, if we were going for these cultural ones, I would say I'll be attacking the giant pile of books I never read but constantly buy. But the reality is, drink more water. I always forget <laughs> to drink water. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's a constant. Gone. Well, like... it's, it's it's January. We're we're full of good intentions. Yeah, water. Give it, give it, give it three days. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be fine. By show two, we'll be falling out of our chair again here on the Culture Show. Um, thank you both for uh, for <laughs> for opening the door into some of your personal lives, Scott. We're going to start with you and your top pick for 2023, or at least the first bit of it. And that is The Last of Us. Where are we here? So this is going to be out quite soon, actually. January the 15th, at least in the US. Of course, a lot of HBO shows end up getting shown in the UK quite quickly. But there's been a lot of anticipation for this. It's um, created by the Emmy Award winning creator of Chernobyl. So Craig Mazin um, is also based on the absolutely acclaimed and very, very popular video game. Um, and it's about a, uh, well, the game at least, it's about where people use firearms and improvised weapons to stop against um, uh, cannibalistic human creatures that have been mutated. So okay. a light zombie thriller just to get you into January. You use the Z word and the, I like the, the producers haven't, but let's face it, they're zombie-like beings. Very much like zombie-like <laughs> like beings. Um and I think it's it's an interesting one just because of how popular the games are. There's a temptation, I think, in which you have 
one genre immediately leading to another. So, for example, podcasts that become hugely popular then get turned into TV shows. And you've also seen big games that then get turned into films and TV um, franchises. And there's some, sometimes be a creative struggle because it is like, how can you ensure that the fans are kept happy who loved the first variation of it, whilst it not being bogged down because it was con- too constrained by a different genre or a different type of media mm. altogether? All I think what brings me a bit of confidence is that Craig Mazin, who, of course, um, with Chernobyl, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, just because it managed to weave in, I think, a haunting factual story full to the brim of facts um, and showing the, the the human consequences of this terrible disaster that happened in the sort of dying days of the Soviet Union. Um, he, he's also, I think, brilliant at characters. And also, if you're thinking about apocalyptic wasteland, I think it's quite similar to this, apart from that, this one's fictional. Yeah. So I feel that he's quite well placed in, into it. And also... I you know HBO barely needs an introduction now. Even in the streaming times, HBO I think have been punching above its weight. Even though it's been having obviously difficulties by there's been a big company merger with who owns um, HBO, it's still able to have shows that everyone's been talking about, such as The White Lotus. You know, last year's probably most talked about TV show, yeah. which has a generally quite a lot smaller budget than a lot of other streaming rival releases. So. I think The Last of Us, they're hoping to be a bit like Game of Thrones, a global event that everyone will be talking about. It's interesting stuff, and it sounds a bit like somewhere, this this show particularly sounds like something that's somewhere between True Grit and a Cormac McCarthy novel. It sounds like there's a lot of post-apocalyptic roadie stuff and they're on a quest to get from one place. Well, take, a, take a young girl, is it? A teenage yes. girl across the United States to safety. Yes, um, so it, it's trying to escape quarantine. You've got Pedro Pascal, who many people will know as um, being the lead in The Mandalorian. Yeah. But um, he's in this, and he's also reported to now be one of the most highly paid American TV stars. Um, tips to have about more than half a million dollars per episode in this. So uh, clearly in demand. Yeah, good one, Pedro. Uh, and we were talking also about Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann, who've created that for HBO. That was Scott's pick of The Last of Us. Francesca, we're going to turn to you and the world of contemporary art. And I thought the F word on the script meant Francesca. Obviously. Um, only pick things that are about yourself. I mean, there's no narcissism here. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the F word, Guerrilla Girls and Feminist Graphic Design. And this is on at the Museum for Kunst and Gewerbe in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of stuff are we going to see? I mean, this is really interesting. This is a kind of design museum in Hamburg in Germany, obviously. And they actually have the complete oeuvre, back oeuvre of the Gorilla Girls, and they're going to be exhibiting 100 works in the show. So it's actually one of the most comprehensive exhibitions that have ever happened of the Gorilla Girls' work, a collective that you may not know. That started in 1985 in New York, or anonymous, made of female feminist artists, highlighting inequality um in the art world, but also in wider worlds of media and creative industries. And alongside their work in this amusingly titled show, they're also showing lots of other feminist graphic design. And interestingly, Germany in particular has quite a big heritage of this. They did a call out for zines. I think they've got 200 feminist zines that are being included in the show. 
And it's I think it's kind of fascinating seeing quite an American aesthetic graphically yeah. being placed in a German context, which is obviously influenced by it, but coming out differently. It's definitely like my wild card for next year. <laughs> but in terms of like a graphic point of view, I think it's quite timely and interesting. And also just the fact that they've bought the entire back catalogue of Gorilla Girls work is interesting. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And what, what's what's the sort of, what's the aesthetic of it? I'm used to thinking of slogans and almost Catherine Hamnett-ish kind of, you know, provocative slogans on T-shirts and things like that. I know that there's work like that, but they've done such a kind of, the Gorilla Girls did and have done such a kind of wide range of stuff. So what? what yeah, I mean, it? obviously they're best known for these kind of billboardy advertising influence statement pieces and listy works. So a lot of things in this are very specific. You could argue in the same way that Barbara Kruger has, like she owns red type, Gorilla Girls have a very particular black type, often against a yellow background, but not always. So they have a very, it is very much coming out of 1980s and 1970s, actually, graphic design and kind of that kind of basic advertising design. But you're seeing the influence of advertising through feminism coming through in a lot of the other manifestations and feminist magazines, etc. And I think that's really timely in terms of the content, that feminism itself is very much responding to the idea of femininity that was sold to generations of women and mm. how that's influenced their capitalism, et cetera, their existence. So I think it's Billboards kind of... Billboards and stuff that look the opposite of the kind of thing that's selling you or selling you as a woman in a certain yeah, way. you got it, exactly. Yeah. And it's the idea that you can see this stuff without reading the, the, the copy on that poster or on, that, on, on these artworks and kind of get a sense of the vitriol, the, the sense of humour, which I understand there's quite a lot of also in this as well. There's kind of a knowingness to it. Mm. But that, that you're getting the message without having to read the words always. I mean, that's really interesting. I don't know if that's necessarily true because obviously this is going to have a lot of German work in it. And I'm sorry, Entschuldigung, my German is not superlative to understand, <laughs> let's say, a German translation of yeah. the Gorilla Girls. So I think that's actually more like a question that the exhibition will raise. Can you get ideas of feminism across without the use of language and how does graphic design play around with image in context of text to convey understanding that is the f word gorilla girls and feminist graphic design it's at the museum for kunst and gewebe hamburg uh, and that kicks off on the 17th of february thanks fran Chris Power, welcome back to the program. Lovely to have you here. Lovely to be here. Um, and what's what we, you've 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 chosen a graphic novel for your first your first pick of twenty twenty three. Where are we with Dina Mohammed's work? So this is a yeah a graphic novel called Your Wish Is My Command, and the first thing you notice, well, this is a book that I think I'm legally obliged to describe as lavish. It's a large <laughs> a large hardback. It's a very beautiful object, and the first thing you notice when you when you open it is that you're at the end because it's actually published and and printed to run right to left so you open what normally to us is the back mm -hmm. and then each panel also kind of runs right to left the sentences run left to right so we've got that but okay. you, you're kind of it takes there's you a little while yeah. yeah there's a sort of um there's an adoption period uh, my daughter picked it up and she's like this is breaking my brain and she had to put it down again <laughs> but um you know that i think that really helps kind of give the flavor a little bit because you're in an alternate Cairo in this in this book and you're in a world where it's it's modern day Cairo but wishes are real and they're codified and you have first second and third class wishes and first class wishes are the preserve of the rich and they can give you pretty much what you want albeit 
if you wish for, say, uh, to end world hunger, that would work for about two days, and then people would get hungry again. So there okay. are limits to the powers of these wishes, <laughs> but you can wish for to have a dinosaur in your garden, as one person does, or to have a great car, whatever it is. Um, now, third-class wishes, which are the only ones that poor people can get access to, are kind of mischievous spirits, and they're very untrustworthy, so they tend to backfire, or there are maimings and mutilations. So they've actually been banned uh, when we enter this world. So sort of like unsafe fireworks kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And there is, you know, a black market for them. Um, but the story centres around this, this kiosk, which is in a poorer district of Cairo, and... Uh, for reasons that are only explained quite deep into the book, this kiosk owner has three first-class wishes for sale, which people aren't interested in buying because they don't have the money or they don't believe that this person's actually got you know, first-class wishes because the government controls access to them. But the book's broken into three, three stories, really, which intertwine about the people who kind of interact with these wishes, what they wish for, where it leads them. Um, one of whom is is sort of married to someone who's constantly trying third class wishes that are always blowing up in his face. And third class wishes are known as deleceps, which, uh, for my sins, I didn't get the reference. But uh, it's a French uh, statesman who was involved in the Suez Canal and is uh-huh. kind of loathed right. in uh, in Egypt <laughs> and uh, and in the UK they're called duffers and in Australia they're called shit tinnies because they come in cans. Because <laughs> um, you get in between each section, you get these kind of infographics where Muhammad really kind of builds out this world and you get a lot of information about where wishes are mined, which is generally in the global south, where they're kind of refined, which is in the global north. And, you know, it's not hard to sort of read this as an as a allegory for, for capitalism, but the way she does it is very, very lighthearted, but also very, very powerful. Sounds amazing. This, I mean, talking of talking of things that start off as one thing and end up as another. This has got this has got major film adaptation written all over it. Surely already, it sounds like an incredible thing. And you know, coming from an Egyptian, a young Egyptian graphic novelist and mm. artist, I suppose it's got a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of selling power behind this. It sounds like an incredible. It sounds like an incredible world to get stuck into. That is your wish is my command by Dina Mohammed. Thanks, Chris Scott. We're going back to you. We're switching it up. We're going to race across the world. Oh, I love this show. Yeah, it's so good. Um, so <laughs> race across the world uh, was a BBC Two hit that came about before the pandemic. It involves teams of two ordinary members of the public trying to get from one part of the world to another on a limited budget. Um, what I loved about this show uh, was the fact that, um, firstly, each team had complete freedom to choose whatever they wanted. It didn't feel like it was in the normal constraints of reality, in which reality can sometimes be quite fake. Um, They went to a lot of extremes to try to ensure that when a team, let's say, decided to go and board a bus and they're not allowed to use their phones, if they board a bus and it turns out that the bus is going in the wrong direction, the production team are going to follow them and not going to say that they've made the wrong decision. Oh, that's good. So you can feel the camera person's (laughs) frustration internally thinking, oh, now I'm going to go 12 hours this way. Um, And I think I loved about it because it shows the power of travel. Uh, you know, the, the idea that you can really broaden your horizons, you can learn about uh, the world, your perceptions can be challenged. Um, but then what happened was the pandemic obviously put an end to the series. The fact that you were teams of two traveling across many countries was impossible when you couldn't travel across many. So finally, I think the show has not been about for two and a half years even though it was on the upward trajectory. So the third series, which is coming to BBC One, they haven't said when, but I think early part of this year, um, is going to feature 
these teams running, oh, I'm not literally running, but racing from one side of um, the US, North America, to the other. So it's essentially the most westerly point to the most easterly. Now, in a way, that's a bit of a shame because before the joy was them passing many different countries and, and having to deal with and borders yeah. and customs and the frustrations of of, of all of that. Uh, this is going to be across Canada and North America, but still, the fact that they've managed to make this work, mm. I think, would be such a such a thrill. And you'll see such different customs with just within. North America, right? I mean, I guess that's that's perhaps something that the producers can push or will naturally happen. That there's a huge amount of, you know, what everyone horribly calls the flyover states are very rich in all sorts of other th- other mm. stuff that these contestants will, will kind of come up against, I suppose. Well, it's always, I think, because there's so many travel shows that really frustrate me of like a presenter going to another country just having a lovely time. And of course, who wouldn't want to do that <laughs> as a job? But it can be that you end up not really seeing much more of a one-dimensional touristy style presentation, which is fine for a carefree hour of TV. Mm. But I think what I like about this show is that um, in you know, series one, there was a whole episode where they couldn't get past Dover. So you're just basically <laughs> seeing Dover for a whole hour because there's a strike on and they can't get onto the next boat and it's like a travel lodge. And I love yeah. that how it does show the highlights, the joys, the thrill of travel, but also the mundanity of it yeah. as well. <laughs> I hope that doesn't clash with the one show. Well, I suppose it won't because it's on BBC One. You're it fine. Will be, You'll it'll be, fine. be on B- B- BBC One. I'll be okay. For you. But yeah, this show, <laughs> hook it to my veins. Yeah, I've heard you talking about this a lot on on social media, Scott, and I need to dive in. That is Race Across the World coming soon to the BBC. So Scott Bryan, who loves it. Have I mentioned that that I love it? (laughs) He loves it, as long as he doesn't spend too much time in Dover. (laughs) Truly. Presumably. Fran, we're turning to you and a wonderful-sounding show of uh, Sengen and Gundy's mm. uh, at Dia in New York City. Now, to the uninitiated um, in this artist's work, could you give us a little pocket portrait of um, Sengen's work? Yeah, I mean, this will be, like, one of the big shows in the States that people will travel for. Sengen's been working for 50 years. Um, this show looks at sculptures she's made between 1969 till now. She's best mates with David Hammonds. She's originally from Chicago, but was based in L.A. and very much intertwined with the African-American art scene out there that emerged in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. She actually has... She was born with a different name. Her name originally was Sue Ellen Irons, and she actually has different names for different aspects of her career. So... As a sculptor, she's Sengen and Goody, but as a painter, she works as Harriet Chin, a photographer as Propecia Lee, and as a writer, Lily Bia Moore, which is also kind of fascinating yeah. that she's playing with that multiplicity. But Sengen's sculptures have increasingly in the past 10 years like really garnered people's attention, and deservedly so, for this midpoint between like performance, found everyday items, and sculpture. She's really good with tights. <laughs> She's the queen of tights. Okay. I've never seen anyone make such incredible work out of the variety of shades of nylon and create these kind of spidery installations that are often the result of performance work. So, yeah, I mean, Sanga's so influential and I think this will be an incredible show. Dia Beacon already being like a destination sculpture location for everyone who's passing through New York to go upstate. So it sounds fascinating. I, mean, yeah. I know her name as as 
kind of a sculptor or a kind of installation artist, I suppose, to use that term loosely, because she does so much, so many different things in different spheres, as you've referenced with her even changing her name for different mm -hmm. things using using uh, pen names. Why can't I think of the word? Su I would say pseudonym. Pseudonym. I only really know her as a sculptor, so yeah, I was kind too. of fascinated mm. that there was this other mm. multiplicity to what she does. But she's very influenced by a variety of different things. Everything from very much looking at obviously avant-garde art world, but also the ritualistic nature in kind of global rights. Mm. Um, I think for a long period of time she kind of was ignored or marginalized for someone who shouldn't be. And it's really interesting how her work is resonating at this particular moment in time, obviously reflective of, let's say, the reworking of the canon that's happened in the past eight years, <laughs> yes. deservedly so. And um, where does Dia sit, sit on that that kind of the art world looking in the mirror and not necessarily always know, liking what it's? Well, I mean, I haven't heard them doing a female artist. Yeah. I mean, this Dia's like Richard Serra, mm. big, fat, giant huge installation sculpture works, kind of, you know, pilgrimage. It's that kind of pilgrimage vibe. They have done some more interesting stuff, interestingly with sound. I think we talked about one of their things yeah, in the past. Yeah, we did. Yeah. A little bit of techno action mm. that was going on there. Um, See down the front. Yeah, but it's not always. <laughs> um, next to the speakers. <laughs> but I think that it's really wonderful. We often, you know, there's such a focus on painting. You'll notice that all three choices I made were not painting. because I did. I'm, I'm just so tired of looking at painting that it's really nice seeing some attention being given to other mediums yeah. in a kind of like high level. So that is Sengen and Gundi. Sounds amazing. Uh, that's at Dear Beacon in New York. That kicks off on the 17th of February and it runs for quite a lot of 2023, I think. So uh, book your tickets. Um, make, like, make like Scott race across the world to get there. Thanks, Fran. Chris, we're coming back to you um, and, a, well, and a new novel um, by one of my favourite writers, Javier Marias. New and most likely final novel, unless there was something else yet unpublished um, at the time of his unexpected death. Uh, one of my favourite writers. So, um, yeah, it's kind of mixed, mixed emotions that mm. bring me to this book, which I've only read the start of so far, but it's it's it's... You know, Marias has a way with first lines, and this book's no exception. It begins, I was brought up the old-fashioned way and couldn't ever have dreamed that I would one day be ordered to kill a woman. Yeah. Um, and it's about this this retired spy who's kind of brought back for one last job um, where he has to move to a sm small Spanish town and determine which of three women is a an ETA terrorist in, in hiding. And Thomas Nevinson, the, the title character, he, he was actually in... Marias's previous novel, Berta Isla, which was about a woman called Berta Isla, and Thomas Nevinson's a, a supporting character. And that novel also features this, this um, spy master called Tupra, who was in Marias's trilogy, Your Face Tomorrow, which he published sort of 12 or so years ago. But I don't think people should be put off by all these sort of recurring characters because the novel's not out for a few months. So what you should do if you haven't read Marias is just go and read all of Marias for the next few months. And then you can cap it all with Thomas Nevinson, this sort of 600 plus page um, capstone on his career. Um, and I think that would not be time wasted because he, he's such an amazing writer. I mean, the two of the novels that he published back to back in the 90s, A Heart So White and Tomorrow in the Battle Think on Me, I, th I think two of the best novels of the 90s. And he's a really interesting, you know, he said of his style, he said, I write with a map 
Uh, sorry, I write with a compass, not a map. He's got a very digressive style, so he kind of wanders every sort of which quite way. Dream, do you, you feel like sometimes you're in a dreamscape, you're going down corridors, you're meeting people, you're getting little glimpses of detail that mm. aren't... Uh, that they're they're not magically realist or anything like that. They're kind of very they're more naturalistic. But no, they're but very they're shimmering. Aren't they're they? shadowy, mm. and the books are labyrinthine, and and he brings out the the oddity of of everyday life. Mm. You know, he kind of he sort of wrote Your Face Tomorrow is a sort of trilogy of, of spy novels, really, and I saw it as a bit of a left turn. I love the books, but actually then. Reading his older work, I'm like, oh, these are all kind of spy novels, even though one's about, you know, Oxford Dons and one's about, uh, you know, a jilted lover. But the way they operate and the sort of distrust and this sort of malleability of character and the unknowability of, of other people all ties in with a sort of a sort of spy theme. Um, and I think that sort of digressiveness he has, it always builds thematically. So you kind of know that he's going to going to bring it home to an extent so in the first 30 pages of this new novel you have sort of um a disquisition on on the executions of Anne Boleyn and Marie Antoinette and then musing on assassination attempts on Hitler the films of Fritz Lang and all the while he's asking this question like what would it take would you ever be capable of murdering someone you know mm. even if it was a Hitler even if it's that sort of tried old tested philosophical question yeah yeah um so I just can't wait to amazing. To read oh, it's, the rest of it. it's, uh, it's uh, it sounds delicious, Chris. Um, it's it's he's he's so wonderful. You never see what he's doing, right? You're re you're kind of always in it, and you can't see the Absolutely, edges of yeah. it ever, anywhere. Yeah, it's, completely it's a wonderful immersive. skill. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. Um, that is going to be new from Javier Marias, dearly departed, um, and the novel is called Thomas Nevinson. Thanks, Chris, very much. Scott, coming back to you for a little last bit of telly, uh, and this is Boiling Point. Yes, yeah, so it stars Stephen Graham. My philosophy has always been that Stephen Graham's never been on TV in anything bad. He's yeah. just one of those incredible actors. Um, this is um, earlier we were talking about a game turning into a TV show. This is a film turning into a TV show. Um, Stephen Graham was in Boiling Point, which was a film that came out last year. Um, got 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, just absolute adoration for this. Um, it's about a head chef at a art market restaurant. And then over the course of an evening, everything just goes to hell, basically. Um, <laughs> of course, chefs and the environments they work in can be stressful at the best of times. But he finds out during his shift that his health and safety inspections gone poorly, that there is a big celebrity in the um, in the restaurant too. Um, and it all just sort of, you get that pressure cooker sense of environment. I think it had so much love because it was also filmed in one take, mm. which has been done in films before, but, I mean, it's one of the hardest feats to go and do. So they're now making this into a TV series, uh, six-parters. I think, to everyone's relief, it's not going to be all shots in one take. Right. Um, you can it, breathe. It, but it will <laughs> be having a naturalistic style of approach because I think that's what it was um, praised for and I think it was almost it was like a featured documentary almost, I mean that's the yeah. thing I think to many people who saw it at least at first they were thinking that they are watching a doc documentary until of course they realised that Stephen Graham I mean could possibly cook but um, <laughs> yeah. is yeah. not the focus <laughs> hasn't changed into a phenomenal <laughs> yeah. chef yeah. overnight we love him but come on we've got to draw the line somewhere he's got uh, three Michelin stars as well yeah I mean come, come on. on I wouldn't be surprised because it's Stephen <laughs> Graham um, so yes this is one to look out for I, I think just because uh, it's not the most popular shows 
um, uh, of last year were ones in which you saw the inner workings of how places sort of work and manifest. Like The Bear, for example, you know, mm. that is another TV show set within a Chicago-based restaurant. The sort of the clash of personalities, the the sense of perfectionism, the dealing of, of stress, um, and just the the idea of your personal life and your professional life kind of clashing dramatically. Um, so I'm very excited for this TV, TV series. Yeah, it sounds amazing. A proper pressure cooker kind of um, environment. And that is Boiling Point, excitingly coming to the BBC at some point uh, near the beginning of this year. Thanks, Scott. Um, Fran, we're coming back to you. Mm. And the excellent Mike Nelson. I Hooray mean, for him at the Haywood. I cannot say how excited I am about the show. This is, for me, there's no way this won't be the best show of next year. Mike Nelson, British artist, represented the Venice Biennale in like the beginning of a decade ago, been nominated for Turner Prize twice. He is just an incredible artist who basically pioneered the entire relationship to installation work. So if you go into like a random cab office in Hackney, there are moments where you're like, wow, I'm in a Mike Nelson. <laughs> he basically has never had a studio. And he's always worked with like site-specific projects. I mean, he has a studio in South London in Crystal Palace, but he actually has never had like a working studio. So he, it's always site-specific projects, very much led by 19th century literature and early sci-fi, feeding into it all, often rooms within rooms. It's so rare to see installation work reconfigured and represented again. A few years ago, Tate did Coral Reef, which was one of his pieces, so you could go see it. But this is the sort of decommissioned industrial machines in the Devine Gallery. Actually, it? this was before that. The, ah. That Devine commission was also truly mm. amazing. I mean, he's very much talking about British culture, even when it's not often. Actually, Turkey's a big, big influence. He's travelled a lot around the Middle East. So once you have an installation work, often you never see them ever again. So for me, this show is so exciting that we're going to see shows like projects from 2004, 2001, 2011, that it's just such a rare opportunity. And post-pandemic, when we're so used to like not having to necessarily be within a space, I think Mike Nelson's work is going to sing like yeah. an, a beautiful diva. I mean, it's going to be incredible. I'm very, very, very excited by the show. And it is, it's a bit, and as you say, he's a lot of it's sort of about Britain and about British history and industrial history and probably the history of what men do for a living. I kind of got some of that through his work as well. I don't want to mention the B word and make it boring, but it, there is something about recent British history that seems to, that, that he feels like he's sort of, he seems to me like he was telling the, telling the future, like he was reading the tea leaves. Really. Well, this show's called Extinction Beckons, and I actually think the real underlying thing under Nelson's work is the idea of decay mm. and very much looking at that. I mean, it can be playing around with kind of dystopian ideas that have wandered through in things like science fiction or Jules Verne or that kind of thing. He uses objects that actually were kind of co-opted afterwards a lot by interactive theatre. They kind of stole his shtick. But um, he's very much like, how do you take narrative and make it into space that you can wander around? It's like wandering around inside the head of a novelist. But the novelist is Mike Nelson, who's obviously very aware and, and of, of its art context. I mean, Mike Nelson's genius. He's brilliant. His work is... There's so much subtlety in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's great stuff. If only Javier, Mar Javier Marias was around to write the, to write an essay for the catalogue. Right? It sounds like they they would have got on very well. There's yeah. a hot catalogue coming with it too. Some good writers in there. Yeah, I bet there is. Um, so this is Mike Nelson. It's a big survey show at the Hayward. It's called Extinction Beckons. 
kicks off on the 22nd of February and runs until the 7th of May, as recommended by Francesca Gavin, no less. Chris, I almost did you out of your last choice there by saying thanks for all your choices. I wasn't going to say anything. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I could get out early. Yeah. Um, so we've got uh, a new offering from friend of the show and all-round wonderful uh, novelist Max Porter. So where is, where is Max taking his wonderful, wonderful eye? Uh, he's taking spring. us to 1995 and he's taking us into the into the head of a, of a boy called Shy. The novel's called Shy. And uh, Shy is at a, at a home for, for very troubled young men, I think is the phrase. And uh, he's busted out of there and he's escaping and he's got a backpack full of rocks. We don't know where he's going or what his plan is. Um, and over the course of this night, as he's as he's fleeing the home... We kind of we kind of surf his his memories and we kind of get an idea of his his childhood and the events that led up to him being in this home um, and we're kind of inside his skin and not you know it's a it's a Max Porter book so there's a there are a lot of sort of single lines left to stand there's a lot of white space on the page some of it's set like a poem some of it's uh, some pages the the space is is crowded with words and others are very Spartan. Um, I think Max's Twitter bio describes him as a writer of short books, and this is he's maintaining <laughs> his brand. This is 128 pages, um, okay. and it's a it's a you you get through it quickly, but it's it's very resonant. It really sticks with you, and it's particularly um, it's particularly great at, at evoking this kind of this out of control youth. Because Shy doesn't really understand why he does what he does either. He kind of you know, one of his memories is going to uh, friends of his mum and dad's, which has become a sort of sanctuary for him. Like when he's when he's with his mum and stepdad, when he kind of it's all too much, he can go to these friends of theirs, and they know he's safe there, and he can kind of not talk to them necessarily, but just sort of decompress a bit. But he goes there; they're not in. He sort of drinks a beer, drinks the gin, starts smashing up all their stuff, and then sort of sits there waiting for the police to come. Um, and he doesn't really know why he's doing these things and there's not like there's not a pat explanation for them but you can kind of feel this this tension within it it's really powerfully evoked it's also deeply uh resonant to all the gen x's out there because there's a lot of drum and bass references there's a lot of um you know so it's set in 95 set in 95 you get joe guest you get loaded magazine you get tekken and then you get a lot of (laughs) Dark side drum and bass and MCs like Skibbity as well. I, I love how I was in Clover. I love that. I love how Tekken <laughs> and Joe Guest can exist beautifully in a troubled, in the story of a troubled young man in a Max Porter novel. It sounds good, like good stuff, doesn't it? Um, that is Shy by Max Porter. It's published by Faber on the 6th of April, as recommended by Chris. So, to recap, keep your eyes and ears peeled for the TV shows The Last of Us, Race Across the World, and Boiling Point, the exhibitions The F World, Gorilla Girls and Feminist Graphic Design, Senganagudi at Deer, and Mike Nelson, Extinction Beckons at the Hayward, and the books Your Wish Is My Command by Dina Mohammed, Thomas Nevinson by Javier Marias, and Shy by Max Porter. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Scott Bryan, Francesca Gavin and Chris Power. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, a very happy new year, and thanks for tuning in. 